Well, uh, we continue to, uh, to see new opportunities that exist, and one opportunity we have right now is to move into a new sermon series, uh, one that is called uh, This is the Way. And this is a series that we're going to be going through from now right up until Easter weekend. And what the uh, hope and what we're going to be doing during this series is following Jesus on his way to the cross and to the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. And if you've, if you've read the Gospels before, if you're familiar with them, you'll know, you'll know that for much of Jesus' ministry, he kind of goes from, from place to place throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and Galilee, kind of almost making laps, where he'll, he'll head to a northern region and kind of go around the, the you know, Sea of Galilee and then down to Jerusalem and then back up and then back. And he's making these laps through the area. And when we read this in the Gospels, they present it different ways. Uh, in Mark's Gospel, for example, you, you may not be familiar with this, but in Mark's Gospel, which is the shortest of all the Gospels, Mark uses the word immediately 41 times. And he gives the, the, the sense that Jesus isn't just making laps, he's like running laps around this area, like he's sprinting everywhere he goes, which Jesus probably wasn't, but immediately comes up 41 times in the Gospel of Mark as he makes this trek. But then there comes a point in Jesus' ministry, it's later on his ministry, where something changes. And, and this change is initiated, it, it's signaled in a few different ways where all of a sudden we see this intentional change of direction as he's intentionally making his way towards the events of Easter. The Gospel of Luke, for example, signifies this in a very important verse in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 9.51, where it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And all of a sudden there's this movement directly towards Jerusalem. And in Mark's gospel, there's a more subtle change that's signaled, but a change nonetheless. And we see it in chapter 8. You see, up until that point in chapter 1 through 7, the word immediately is used like 35 times in the first seven chapters. And then you get to chapter 8, and all of a sudden, that's not used as much. Instead, Mark introduces a new phrase. A new phrase from Mark 8 through to the time that Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem. And the phrase is this, is that Jesus and his disciples were on the way. They were on the way to Jerusalem. They were on the way to Easter. And this is the way that we're going to be talking about. And while they were on the way, Jesus taught his followers some very critical lessons about discipleship, about what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in their lives. And through these lessons, Jesus did not just point them in the direction of the way, but he, because he didn't want to just tell them the words and say, guys, go, go do your best. But he actually walked the way with them all the way to the cross. Therefore, we could say that Jesus taught the disciples in the way as they journeyed along the way to the cross where he would become the way. Because that is the way. Jesus taught his disciples in the way as they journeyed along the way to the cross where he would become the way. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to walk along the way with Jesus and reflect upon these important lessons of what it means to be a follower of Christ and that will lead us right up to our Easter weekend where we will remember and we will celebrate that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So that's where we're going for the next few weeks. I hope you'll join us on site in particular, but if you can't make it on site, that you'll join us online for each of these messages in the weeks ahead. And so we begin today in Mark chapter 8. And I invite you to turn there if you would. It's on page 820 in your pew Bible if you want to use a pew Bible. And we're going to be starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And while you're turning there, I just, I want to explain that each of these sections of teachings, they actually follow a bit of a pattern. 
And, and I'm not going to be explicit in this pattern each week, but you'll probably see it if you watch for it, where, where Jesus will begin each section of teaching with a question. And following the question, he'll make one of his predictions of what's ahead, of his, of his death and resurrection. And then, and then the disciples, in some fashion, will kind of fumble the ball, and Jesus will teach them a lesson on how to pick it up again. But it all starts with a question. And it's interesting because questions are extremely powerful ways that a person can teach and a powerful way that a person can actually coach as well. If you've ever had a good coach or a good teacher, there's a high likelihood that they used questions as one of the primary ways that they taught you. And the reason being is that when you ask somebody a question, you're, you're, you're pointing them in the right direction, but you're not explicitly telling them what to do. And there's power in that because you're providing the answer but you're requiring the person to see the need for the answer themselves. You're requiring the person to apply what they're hearing to their lives themselves. If you've ever gone to a counselor before, you've probably experienced this. Because counselors are known for asking a lot of questions. And some people hate that. <laughs> That's probably the reason they don't go. It's like they just keep prying into what's happening. Well, it's kind of their job. They're in a role of asking questions. And some of the initial questions they'll ask will be things along the lines of, how can I help you today? Or, what's on your mind? And as you explain a little bit, they may ask you some questions, well, how did that make you feel? Or, or what did you do? And some of these questions are like nails on a chalkboard to some people who aren't sure about counseling. But, but you can see the value of the process. But then the questions change. If you've been to a counselor, you've experienced this, the questions change. They don't stop. But they change. Because the counselor reaches a point where they see very clearly what's going on, and their questions are now orientated to help you see what they see is happening in your life so that you can apply the direction they're pointing you in. No counselor may look at you and say, Susie, is it possible that, that you're always speaking your mind? Isn't the spiritual gift that you think it is? <laughs> it is leading to some of the challenges you have. They're trying to help you see what they see. And Jesus is a great coach. He's a, he's a great counselor as well. And we see in these lessons, he begins by asking great questions. And the first one we look at today is probably one of the most important questions that he ever asked and is still worth asking today. We see this in verse 27, where it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, there's our phrase, on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. The guys report some pretty classic answers. Jesus' popularity has an all-time high. He has just fed the 4,000. He's just healed a blind man. People know about this guy. His popularity is at all-time high. And so we asked him, who do people think I am? There's lots of people following me. But who do they think that I am? And the disciples give answers that people are still giving today in some fashion. Consider, for example, they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. How could that be possible? Jesus was just with John the Baptist just recently. It's, it, it's this idea that if they're saying John the Baptist, they have some sort of, it, it's reminiscent of some sort of new age metaphysical understanding about who Jesus could be. They said, well, Jesus, some people think you're Elijah. Elijah, an important historical figure who's come back to life. And, and sometimes we hear stories. If you, study, if you study world religions, especially in the Eastern mysticism, you see these, these different expressions of, of a holy man, sometimes even including Jesus. Sometimes you see understandings of reincarnation to explain who Jesus is. Well, some people say, Jesus, you're, you're, you're a prophet. 
A prophet would be the same as a, as a wise teacher. We've probably heard this. You ask a man on the street interview style, who do you think Jesus is? You will hear a wise teacher, a wise prophet. You will hear that many, many times. Basically saying, I'm not sure who he is, but he's worth listening to. I'm not sure who he is, but he has these pearls of wisdom I'm going to put in my pocket and I can take them out when I need them one day. You get similar answers today. They may not say John the Baptist, Elijah, and a prophet, but we get similar understanding, some spiritually attuned, wise teacher. But you know what all these answers have in common? You know what they all have in common? Is that regardless how increasingly less rational they all are than the actual truth, the reason that they're more palatable, the reason they're more popular is because all of these answers hold the one thing in common, is that they do not create any controversy. And they do not create any controversy because none of those answers make any demand upon your life. You can accept any of those answers. You can still affirm that Jesus is a good guy. You can still allow yourself to listen to his teachings. You can still even esteem him. He was a wonderful, he was the best prophet ever. You can affirm all of those things and still carry on your own way. Because it makes no demands upon your life. But then Jesus turns to his disciples, and he asks them, but what about you? Who do you guys say that I am? And the weight of the question's heavier on them. And, and I imagine there was a quiet for a while as they walked, and they could only hear the sound of the wind and the, and, and the feet upon the gravel path, because they all had the same answer in their head, but nobody wanted to speak it for the first time. Until Peter, who thinks every question's asked to him in the first place anyways, and so Peter speaks up and goes, Jesus, you're the Messiah. But if that's true, if it's true that Jesus is the Messiah, how is that different from every other answer that they have been given? If Jesus is the, smart, is the Messiah, that means more than Jesus is just somebody I want to hang out with. More than somebody I want to associate with. Somebody I want to name drop. Is, yeah, no, I read some of his writings. It's more than that. If Jesus is the Messiah, it has meaning. Meaning to the level where it places a demand upon your life. Meaning that you are not free to do what you want. It means that you are not free to shape the definition of right and wrong the way that you want. Meaning if Jesus is the Messiah and you proclaim that as your answer to this question, it informs your decisions, your relationships, your worldview. And that's not always easy. And many people don't want that Jesus. They want another form of Jesus, but not that one, because that places a demand upon my life if that's the Jesus that I know. It's kind of like when you go to the store, and you're thirsty, and you want to buy a drink. And so you walk down the beverage aisle, and we've all been to the grocery store. I'm always amazed every time I turn down there how many chips are on one side and how many pops are on the other side and how they want to sabotage my day at the gym. But you still walk down there, and there are so many flavors down there. And there's the Pepsi section and the Coke section. Who goes to the Pepsi section? Not many, right? You know what it is? There's more Pepsi drinkers here than you think. They're just afraid to admit it because Coke has been, like, dominating that, right? Coke drinkers, they're loud and proud. Yep, loud and proud Coke drinkers. There they are. But you walk down the aisle and you go to the Coke section, and what do you see? You will see so half the aisle. You've got regular Coke, you've got Diet Coke, you've got Cherry Coke, you've got Vanilla Extra Caffeine Coke. A few years ago back, remember they brought out New Coke? Everyone hated it, so they brought out Coke Classic. 
You go down to the Popeye, you see all these different kinds. Eventually, you get to one of the most increasingly popular ones on the market today, one called Coke Zero. And the motto is, all the refreshing taste of Coke with zero calories. That's the Jesus that a lot of people are looking for. A lot of people are looking for the zero-calorie Jesus, all the refreshing taste of Jesus with zero calories. But here's the problem. You see, you can turn the definition of Jesus into into a marketplace of options. You can try to erase the Messiah Jesus from the annals of history. But anything less than calling Jesus the Messiah is simply Coke Zero Jesus. All the refreshing taste with zero demand upon yourself. All the refreshing taste with zero transformation inside of you. Now, Peter answered correctly. But Jesus warns them all not to say anything. Even though they've got the right answer, he's like, but don't tell anybody yet. Why would that be? Well, there's two reasons. One, simply because the time had not yet come. Jesus had not yet completed his ministry. But, but the second one is really critical. It's because the disciples did not fully grasp even themselves, even though they got the right answer, they did not fully grasp even themselves what it meant to call him Messiah. And so for the very first time, Jesus reveals to them what they were on the way to. And we pick this up in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly to them about this. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. If he was speaking in parables and metaphors and analogies, they probably could have accepted the lesson. Because there's, okay, this is just the surface explanation, Jesus. Give us, give us the real message behind this. But, but he says he was speaking plainly. He wasn't using any figures of speech. This was exactly what it sounded like. And it led to a question within themselves. If this is the path we're walking, a path of rejection, of suffering, and of death, where's the victory in that? How can Jesus be the Messiah if that's the path he's walking? If he's walking the path of rejection and suffering death, how can he be the Messiah? That's not what the Messiah does. No, we're going to continue to rally support, and then we're going to march on Jerusalem, and then one way or another we're going to overthrow Rome, and then we will be free of oppression. Then we will reestablish the nation. Then Jesus will be our king. And so Peter's baffled. He's baffled about how God's purposes could ever be fulfilled through a path that leads through suffering and death. And he takes Jesus aside to avoid embarrassing Jesus in front of the others. And he basically scolds him. You can't talk like that, Jesus. What are people going to think? If you keep talking like this, they're going to think our whole mission is foolishness. And that's no way to gain the followers that we need. Peter had heard the words Jesus spoke. Yeah, suffering, rejection, death. But he just outright rejects God's plan and labels it as foolishness. You know, Paul ran into this when he was in his different churches. In one church in particular in Corinth, he wrote to them and said this. He said, for since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness, from what they called foolishness, to what was preached, to use that to save those who believe. You see, for some to accept Jesus as their Messiah 
to declare him Lord and Savior in their lives, it's just too big of a demand. It's just too hard, and so they say no. But there are others. There are others who, who to be told that you need to believe that Jesus died upon the cross and that his payment was enough, it's almost too easy. There must be more to it. That can't be all it is. That can't be what it is. There must be more to it. If that's all it is, it is foolishness. That's how they label it. But in God's wisdom, he knew better than the wisdom of man, and he actually is saving people through what they label to be foolishness. And so as Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke, he points this out by saying, you know, if you will follow your own way, if you follow your own wisdom, you're going to miss it. And so in verse 33, he says to him, but Jesus then turned to Peter and looked at his disciple, and he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus turns and rebukes Peter in a pretty harsh manner. Get behind me, Satan. He isn't suggesting that he's been possessed by Satan. Sometimes that's a plain reading of it that is not accurate what's going on here. He's not accusing Peter of being possessed by Satan. He's accusing Peter of having the same motive as Satan. Explain what I mean. We can go back to an earlier time in Jesus' ministry. But you can find in Matthew chapter 4, a passage that if you're one of our Beyond the Message small groups, we'll be looking into a little bit deeper in the week ahead. But if we go back to Matthew chapter 4, we see that this is the uh, time when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And if we, this is the part of the ministry where Jesus was baptized, and then as Mark says, immediately after his baptism, he was taken off into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And if you look at this temptation, what does Satan not do? Satan does not deny who Jesus is. He does not deny that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. When you read through what the, what the, what the, uh, the temptations were there, he basically starts them by saying, since you are the Son of Man, and then he continues on with his temptations. His objective in the desert was not to make Jesus question his identity. It was not to make Jesus question his purpose. The whole purpose of the temptations was to help Jesus find another way, to find another way of achieving being the Son of Man, being the Messiah. You see, Satan's primary goal was to erase the cross from Jesus' path. That was the whole purpose. Let's find another way that doesn't include rejection, suffering, and death. Let's find a way that doesn't include the cross. Peter longs for the kingdom of God to come. And so as we hear Peter's rejection or rebuke, don't, don't mistake that. He longs for the kingdom of God. He is all in on Jesus. But he wants it through triumph, rather through suffering and death. Like Satan, Peter is trying to erase the cross from Jesus' path. But before you judge Peter too hard or too harshly for doing that, maybe you can join me in actually understanding Peter's concern. Because I totally get where Peter's coming from. I understand, even as I stand here right now and and preach this message, which is going to get even a little heavier before we're done, I I totally get where he's coming from. I share his desire to be popular. Like Peter, I want to be on the winning team. I want to be successful, and I want Jesus to be successful. And so my thoughts on how that's possible align with the human concerns, with with things like prestige and status and and political and military power. And, And even when we look at the church, and what does it mean to have a win in the church? Well, Numerical growth, right? No, those are human concerns. 
And Jesus says, you're concerned about human things. God is concerned about God things. And God's concerns confront the worldly norms of what it means to define success. And God calls people to accept a different path to walk. A path that includes things like rejection and suffering and dying to the human concerns. I get Peter. I understand it because there's, there's some hard parts of this message we're going through. And rightfully so, as Jesus is, is literally steps, every step he takes on the way is one step closer to the cross. He knows the time is short, and he has to get the important messages out. These are not easy messages as we walk into Easter. I know that they can be hard. They are not Coke Zero Jesus messages. But if they were, they'd be so much easier to preach. They'd be so much more palatable for, for people who are wondering if Jesus you know, it loves them and, and, and invites them to really receive the new life we talk about. But while that Jesus is more attractive to people, it's so much less successful. At least success as God defines it. Because without the path of rejection and suffering and death, there is no cross. And without the cross, there is no payment for sin. And if there is no payment for sin, then we may as well just call Jesus a prophet. We may as well just call him a good teacher or a man of history, which makes zero demands upon our lives. But when Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am? He asks as one who went to the cross. He asks as one who went to the cross. Therefore, he asks as the one whom you can declare as the Messiah, the one whom you can declare to be the Lord and Savior of your life. But know this, it places a demand upon your life, a demand upon your life that you need to follow the way and the direction that he leads you to go. It is not without the demand. If you declare Jesus to be anything apart from having a demand upon your life, it is a Coke Zero version of Jesus. So after Peter's failure to understand this, Jesus thinks he needs to inform all of his disciples of this. So he calls them together. And he teaches them what the way of the cross doesn't just look like in his life, but what the way of the cross is going to look like in their lives as well. And we come to verse 34, where Jesus says this to them. He says, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves. They must take up their own crosses. And they must follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Now we're currently in a, a season of Lent. And there are some people who, who observe Lent. And it's, uh, it's this solemn observance. Uh, pointing back to the 40 days of fasting that Jesus had in the wilderness. During that time of temptation. And where he fasted from food is part of observing Lent. People will choose something from their lives that they're going to fast from for, for 40 days. And in the space that that, fill, that that creates in their lives, of where they used to do that activity or that thing, they, they fill that space with, with prayer and devotional time to reflect more upon God. Some people will choose things like they will fast from TV. Some people will fast from um, social media. Some people fast from the gym, and they've done like a 40-year fast instead of a 40-day fast. But, you know, there's different things that people will choose to fast from. One common one, uh, coffee. I should challenge Andrew to fast from coffee. This year, Lent started on March 2nd, and is it any curiosity that roll up the rim at Tim Hortons started on March 7th? Things that make you go, hmm. That may not be a coincidence that you roll up the rim happens during Lent. You know, so this, this virtue of self-control is great. 
And it's very important for people to practice self-control as they, as they are followers of Christ. But that's not really the full understanding. That's sometimes what we think Jesus talks about here in denying themselves. But that's not really the full extent of the denial of self that Jesus is speaking of. You know, more accurately to look for an example of what it means to, to deny yourself is not so much the fasting in the wilderness as much as an example that Jesus would set just a few weeks apart from when he would give this command. A few weeks later, he would find himself demonstrating this in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before his own death. We read about this in Matthew 26, a, a great description of what Jesus endured in the Garden as he felt this extreme pressure of the event, the, in, the ensuing event, this extreme pressure upon his humanity. And he was just so overwhelmed that, that he, was, he was moved to, it says things like he was, he was knocked to the ground by emotion. He was sweating blood. He was so stressed and burdened by what was ahead. And in the course of doing this, three times he said, God, if you're willing, if there's another way, but not my will, yours. Three times he prayed that. You see, in response to Peter's failure and understanding who Jesus is and what must take place, for Jesus to be the Messiah. This is more in line with what Jesus is talking about here when he says you must deny yourself. He's calling his followers to say no to self-will. To say no to self-desires that will do nothing more than simply enslave. Instead, in the example of the garden that Jesus will soon show them, we see that even in the face of rejection, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of loss, the response of denying the self is to say, not my will, but yours. Even when it means, I can't do whatever I want. I can't go to that place with you. I, I, I can't participate in that. I, I shouldn't be watching this. I shouldn't be listening to this. I, I, I shouldn't be living in this situation. Whatever that looks like in different situations, understanding, not my will, but yours even if it cost us reputation, even if it cost us relationships because people reject us, even if it costs us financially because it's, it's, it's cheaper to live in certain situations than others. In response to Peter's failure, he says, this is the answer, to deny yourself and walk the hard path. That's what Jesus did in the garden. Lord, if there's another way, but not your will, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus got up and he bore his cross for us. And by doing so, the cross became the symbol of the Christian faith. And many people have crosses. They, they, they hang them in their homes, in their offices. They wear them around their necks. Some people have really cheesy Christian t-shirts that have crosses on them. But people don't always understand the full understanding of the meaning of that symbol. Yes, there's the meaning of, of Jesus you know, dying upon the cross and, and paying the price for our sins. And, and that's part of the meaning. But it's actually a deeper meaning that comes from it. And there's a deeper meaning that relates back to the demand that places upon us. And, and I hope you'll, you'll sort of pay attention to this. So if you, if you have a cross on a necklace or something, that you'll have a fuller understanding of what it means every time you see it. Yes, it is a reflection, a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But to what extent? You see, the cross, the symbol of a cross, was in that time of Jesus, it was a symbol of the imperial capital punishment and of the Roman domination of the people. 
When somebody back in the ancient Near East in the time of Jesus saw a cross, what they would think is capital punishment, and they would think Roman domination. We are being oppressed by Rome. And Rome had many ways that they could kill people. The cross wasn't the only way. They had many ways of killing people that were much swifter, much simpler, and much less expensive. And if you committed a capital crime of you know, murder or rape or something like that, they had other ways of killing you that didn't take as much effort or time. It was much more swift. You see, the cross was used, but it was reserved when they wanted to make a spectacle of something. If you hung on a cross, it wasn't just because you were guilty. You hung on a cross because they were trying to set a message to the citizens of the region as well. The message being, stay true to the king. Live according to his rules. Live according to the customs of the land. And you have no reason to worry about being on a cross. But if like one of these men who are hanging upon this cross, if you threaten the peace of the nation, if you threaten us by having a new way of life, if you choose to declare a new king in this realm... Don't be surprised if you find a wooden beam across your shoulders as you have a cross to bear. And the Bible teaches that God has permitted Satan to be the prince of this world for this time. Therefore, all people who live apart from Christ are subject to his rules, are subject to his customs. And when you declare Jesus the Messiah, when you declare him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, you are declaring a new king. You are declaring a new way of life. You are declaring the coming of a new kingdom into this world. And the powers of this world push back. They push back as Jesus explained they would. They push back in the way of saying, you will be rejected. You will suffer for that. You will have to bear your cross for proclaiming Jesus in this world. And we see this in the world all around us. There are small ways it happens in our lives here, and there are incredibly difficult and painful ways it happens elsewhere. I was listening to a podcast a little while back about a Chinese pastor who has a, just a rapidly growing underground church in China. And he spoke about how he is constantly under threat of arrest and injury to himself and to his family. He's suffering constantly the, the threat of personal and financially being wiped out of everything he owns and has access to, his ability to buy a house, to work, to have money, to trade, to sell, anything. Constant threat of those things if he's found out simply for the perceived crime of declaring the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. And while he was talking about all these things that he experiences as he pushes into building this underground church, he says he talks with fellow pastors, and they never speak as though it's a question of if this will occur. It is simply a matter of when it will occur for them. They have an incredible cross that they need to bear. It is a cross that the prince of this world, that Satan, seeks to burden upon them. And upon all who would declare Jesus Christ. It's a burden of a cross that is, that is meant to intimidate people who may choose to say yes to Jesus Christ. And it is through the fear of the cross that he wants to keep them from declaring Christ. And it is from the weight of the cross he tries to break their faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing you need to know about this. Is that he cannot win. You know why he cannot win? Because he's already lost. Because Jesus already bore his cross for us, and he crushed Satan's head. And Satan already knows that he's lost. But he continues to fight. He continues to fight with lies and chaos and fear of heavy burdens. He continues to fight because of those things and trying to lay a cross upon you. You know why he continues to fight? 
He's not fighting to gain his victory. He's fighting to steal yours. That's why he continues to fight. That's why he worries you and threatens you with the weight of the cross if you say yes to Jesus in the public space. If you say no to this will upon my life and I say yes to Jesus' will, it'll hurt. It'll cost something. There'll be a burden. There'll be a loss associated with it. Yes, there is a cross to bear with it. But don't let him keep you from having the victory that he has already been wiped out from ever having a hope of. See, his intimidations are to keep you enslaved by saying this is too hard. His lies are to make you believe in human wisdom, that human wisdom is no better, and to say this is too easy. And his attempt to erase the cross that involves rejection and suffering and loss is to make you say this is too strict. But to those who declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, they do not have to try to defeat him by their own power. They do not have to try to defeat him by the way of the world through things like force and violence and and culture and military victory. We don't have to claim independence from him and somehow fight on our own because we can fight through the countercultural weapon of surrender by coming under the way of the cross and by surrendering to the cross and to the will of God and to get in line and follow the way that Jesus marks out is where we find freedom and it's where we find victory. You know, as this podcast I was listening to continued, the interviewer is about to wrap it up and he asked this pastor, how can we in the West pray for you? Great question to finish with. But the response of this pastor of this underground church in China was, was shocking. And it was such a lesson on what it means to walk the way of the cross for us. The pastor said, if you want to pray for us, stop praying for persecution to end. Because it is through persecution that the church has grown. That doesn't make sense to our wisdom of the Western world of understanding how you grow a church and and how you invite people to know Christ. But this pastor of this growing, thriving underground church in China said, stop praying for persecution end, for that is how people are coming to know faith and the church is growing. And then he continued and he said, in fact, we are praying that the church in North America might taste the same persecution so that revival might come to that land as it has come in China. I don't know how I feel about that. But you see the irony in it? We pray for God to bless us and to save us from persecution, while those who are being persecuted pray that God would dismantle us through rejection and through suffering and through loss. Those who are being rejected and bearing those crosses are praying that we too may come to walk the way of the cross. That's no Coke Zero Jesus. I may agree with our human sensibilities to to look for a different type of Jesus, but that's not the one that we need. And it's not the one that leads to success. And so as I conclude today, I want to invite the worship team to come back out and join me on the platform. I want to finish reading this passage with you because Jesus goes on to explain a little more about why this is the way. And he does so beginning in verse 36, where he explains the rationale behind it. And he simply says this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It's true that if we pursue the concerns of this world, if that is, if that is the sum total of our life, is to pursue the concerns of this world, it may bring some value in this life, 
But there is nothing in this life that will ever make us worthy. There's nothing in this life that will ever be of great enough value for eternal life. The only way is the way of the cross, the one walked by Jesus. That's the only way worthy of eternal value. And then he offers a warning. He continues in verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Sometimes we apply this understanding of of denying Jesus in public spaces is how we understand this. If you deny me, I'll deny you. And and it's true. Obviously, we shouldn't deny Jesus in public spaces. That's the place where we should be proclaiming Jesus. But that's not in keeping with the text, in keeping with the message that we see in this section. That's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about in here is if anyone denies their need for a place in the community of surrender, if you deny that you need to walk the way of the cross, if you deny that you need Jesus, whom is declared the Messiah, who went to the cross, if you deny that you yourself are a cross bearer, that's what he's talking about in here. And so, so I just invite all of us to reflect upon that and consider. There may be some who are online or on site here right now who have never made that profession of faith and said yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you are the one who paid the price that I could not upon the cross. I believe you bore your cross for me. And that you made it possible that I could be forgiven. There are people who haven't accepted that yet who may be on site here online. I invite you to do so even just right now where you sit or when I pray in a moment or at the end of the service, come talk to myself or Pastor Andrew. And you can make that profession of faith and declare him the Messiah. But, but know this, it comes with a demand upon our lives. That's not easy. It's not easy. There may be some here who need to reaffirm that the way that they have answered the question, who do you say I am, is of a lighter version than the one that Jesus speaks of here. We'd be happy to pray and talk with you as well. And none of those answers were easy by any means. I'm never going to preach an easy message. Well, I haven't today. But it's the one I think that we need as we consider who Jesus is. But know that's not the end of the story either because then Jesus finishes with a promise. He finishes with this promise. He says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come in power. See, the experiences of rejection and suffering and loss that we may experience in this life will not go on forever. And in the light of the joy and the blessing of knowing Jesus in this life, and especially in the life to come, we come to realize that when he is with us, there is no better way, because this is the way. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to have entered into our world, to have taught and to have revealed the power and the presence of the kingdom of God. Jesus, it's not easy what you endured and what you call us to be about. But Lord, any easier version would simply be a God of our own creation. And if it's a God of our creation, it's not a God worth following. Lord, I know that sometimes there are answers and hesitations and struggles, and it's hard to bear the burdens. But God, we thank you for the promise that we do not walk this alone. We thank you for the promise, the reminder that you walked it first. Therefore, you can understand, you can relate. And when you come alongside us, you can guide us, you can provide for us. You can help us to bear the burdens that are difficult to do. Lord, I pray that as those of us who are here right now who are 
we're wrestling with some of these thoughts in our minds maybe of, of what does that look like in my life? I just pray, Lord, for those who have not made that first-time profession, that they would just do so in this moment right now and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for me. I now give you mine. That they would make themselves known so that we could continue to walk with them and what it means to be a follower of Christ. I pray for those of us here who have done that in the past, but know that sometimes we are too prone to allow our own will and our own selves to, to dominate our direction and the path that we walk. But I pray you'd help us to confess that, to place that at the cross, but then to stand up saying, not my will, but yours, and walk forward, understanding that the burden shared with you, because you say, come, take my yoke, walk together. Lord, walk with us, strengthen us, empower us, that your kingdom would be grown and would be known. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.